Now, when we uh, look at a chapter like this, and you think of the context of its giving and the way that the Lord gave it, is, is it possible for us as believers to have a more important scripture than this one? Now, this is delivered by the Lord himself at the time when he says he will meet us. And this is what he has to say. Now, I, I don't think in any other part of scripture there is anything to quite equal this. It would have to be the most important scripture, brethren and sisters, for us waiting to meet him. So what we have before us is a, a really unique thing. We have the Lord speaking and telling us the attitude that he will have because of the attitudes that we have. And that becomes the issue of this chapter. Now, when we look at the uh, one here, you've got some... Uh, uh, pages in front of you tonight, <clears throat> if you took one off the chair at the back there. Now, I made a summary here in the first one about the talents. Last time, of course, we did the, the virgins. And these parables all go together and you'll find on the back uh, page uh, that this is paralleled and I put on the right uh, the relevance of what he said in the discourse on the Mount of Olives concerning in chapter 24, and what it replies to the, the talents, what replies to the, to the sheep and the goats. And what you're finding here is that there's a connection of ideas all the way. What the Lord has done in chapter 24, he carries in chapter 25, he does it in the talents, he does it in the sheep and goats, and he did it in, in the virgins as we did last time in our study here. So by joining those up, what we're able to do is pick out the variables, but see just what is appropriate to each of the cases. Now, in the virgins, we had the wisdom of the virgins. The wisdom. The ones that were wise had oil in their vessels with their lamps, and those that were not wise didn't take the vessels with, their lamp, with the oil in it, the extra oil. So extra oil was required at the time when he would come. And we had to, to look at what that oil represents. The oil is not just something that we take in mentally. It's not just the understanding of the things of the scriptures. It's the performance of them because of the understanding. It's the works that come from faith. Without faith there, and without works, we can't have a total thing. Faith is only seen by works. And that becomes the keynote of everything that Jesus tells us. Now, in the talents, we have the faithfulness of Christ's trusted servants. You see, in chapter 24, we, we remember the words that he said. He said to them in verse 45, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? So there's two different attributes, but they're very much associated whom the Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Who then is a faithful and wise? Now the wise he did first in the virgins, now he's doing the faithful. Now when it comes to the giving of the faithful, and we've got Jesus giving uh, this parable, he, he tells them first of all in verse 14, that the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling into a far country. 
Now, when we get this expression, the kingdom of heaven is like, what he's always saying is, is entry into the kingdom of heaven as a qualification is like this. It's not the kingdom itself that's like this. It's entrance into the kingdom. Always, when he says that in the, in the parables, that's what he means. How do we enter into the kingdom itself? What is the qualifications required for entry into the kingdom? And he says, well, it's like this. It's a man travelling to a far country. Now, when he, when he said that, the disciples that were there didn't initially understand what he meant. They couldn't have done that because they just did not comprehend that he was going to be crucified and then go away and then be away for 2,000 years. They wouldn't, even now would never have comprehended that. So that was not in their mind at all at the time when he's giving it, but it was certainly in his. You see, in John chapter 14, just a few days later, brethren and sisters, he said to them this, didn't he, in John chapter 14 and in verse 28. Now, what he said to them is, uh, let's go back a little. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you, yet being present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said to you. So he's explaining, they're not going to understand what he's saying now. Because they can't comprehend he's going to disappear. They expect him to be a king and to set up the kingdom. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it, give it I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither yet it be afraid. And that, of course, is forewarning them of their need when the day comes that he does go, that they need to take these words and bring them back to their minds. You have heard now, I said unto you, I go away and come again to you. If you loved me, you will rejoice because I said, I go to my father, for my father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it come to pass that when it comes to pass, you might believe. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so do I. Arise, let us go hence. They're really remarkable words, aren't they? See, Jesus had the presence of mind when no one else could appreciate what was going to happen to him, but he knew what was going to happen in just a few days. And he had the presence of mind to be caring about them, not concerned about the tragedy that he himself would experience. That there's a dimension to Jesus, brethren and sisters, which, which we have to remember constantly. And he says here that he's going to send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gifts which were going to come upon them when the Spirit would come upon them in Pentecost, etc. He's giving them that because it will be the assurance that he has gone to the Father, which is the most important thing because it means their salvation is secured in him. I've told you this before it come to pass, that when it comes to pass, you might believe. Now, when we go back to this parable then, in the talents, he goes to a far country. 
and he delivered them his goods. Now, when we talk about talents, we have a tendency, don't we, to think about personal abilities, the talent. Some people have a talent to do this, and some people have a talent to do that. We have people saying they have a talent quest because they're smart singers or whatever they are. Now, we look at talents like that. It's nothing to do with that here, of course. Talents is just literally money in this particular case. It's a lot of money. Uh, Brother Carter, actually, when he wrote back in 1954, he said it's 250 British pounds, about that per talent. Now, what would that be now, 1954? In 1954, I think we, we were earning about 20 pounds a week, $40 a week. That, that was the weekly, general weekly wage about that time. What is it now? It's just amazing. It's a lot of money, in reality, that was being given to them. Now, he delivered them his goods. That's what he says in verse 14. He delivered them his goods. What is goods? What, what, is, what has Jesus given us, brothers and sisters? Now, there is something interesting about it because... When he said to them, when I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit, it was actually recorded in Scripture as being a gift, wasn't it? It was God's gift. As a consequence of Jesus accomplishing his salvation, he would give gifts to men, as the psalm said. So the gifts were of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But, but in that particular case, they were very specific gifts for a special occasion in order to establish the Ecclesia and to finalise the Scriptures. And of course they don't exist anymore. But what does he give us? Now, you notice in the giving of the Holy Spirit gifts, we don't go there at the moment, we'll lose too much time, but in the giving of those gifts, they were given differently to every person? It's, it's like a pattern here. There's a difference in what he gives to every person. And as he says here, according to their several ability, according to their several ability. Now, we have a tendency to think that ability here, therefore, means the, the acumen that we have ourselves or the special characteristics that we possess. I don't think so. I, I don't think that's what it is. The gifts that he gives are, in addition to our personality and our situation and what we are, we have to consider these gifts at a different level, brothers and sisters, to that. He's not saying, I give to this man this because he has a natural inclination to be able to handle that. No, I don't think so. What he's actually saying is, under the poor the gospel was preached, not unto the famous and the wisdom of this world, as he says in Corinthians. Not many wise men. So we're not, we're not going to people that have a high acumen that can do these things. It's not the wisdom of this world. It's the wisdom of godly spiritual principles. And, and on that basis, brethren and sisters, the poor would be able to manifest them better than the wise of this world. But there's going to be variations between those that manifest them. So even though we receive the gift, it's our receiving of the truth. And there's somewhat difference between each of us in the way that we receive it, which, which may be connected to some degree with personality, 
But it's also connected with our intent, isn't it? The extent to which we absorb it, brethren and sisters. And that's what we put into it. So it's not an easy thing to just analyse what these talents are as to why he gave one to five, one to two and one to one. See, in each case, he gives one to five, he gives one to two and one to one in their ability to use a spiritual gift. What's the spiritual gift that you've received from Christ? It's, it's not an easy question to predictly answer that, is it? Now, is it our knowledge of Scripture? Probably not, because knowledge of Scripture can vary with personal ability to study it and to retain ideas and connect those ideas together and remember passages. That might be a personal acumen, which is very much given to, to different abilities of people as we see it in the world today. But it's, it's the seriousness of it, brethren and sisters, the extent to which we can absorb it and make it work in our life. And some have the ability of five, some two, some one. But everyone has the ability. You know, the sower parable was given uh, in Mark chapter 4. Just look at it for a minute quickly. We, we know these parables so well, but what we've got to remember is that when Jesus gave the parable of the sower, he said some things about it that are very significant. He said to them in verse 13, and this is after he'd given the parable, and he said to them, Know ye not this parable? Now I've given you the story, and, and he talks about the story of the seed that was sown on the different soils. I've given you the story. And then he asks the question, do you not know it? Do you not understand what I mean when I give this parable? How then will you know all parables? Now that little expression, how then will you know all parables, is saying, and this is, there's only two parables that Jesus actually ever explains by going point by point down them to explain them. Only two. Because all the others, we've got to interpret ourselves the same way. We've got to use the same basis of interpretation. Now, he says, by interpretation, I'll give you the explanation. The sower sows the word. And he goes down, then there's those by the wayside. When the word is sown, and when they have heard, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in their hearts. So he talks about the difference of people's reception to his teaching. Now, down that reception, we come. Some by the wayside disappear. That's not us then. We're here. We're still here, brothers and sisters. Some are sown on stony ground, and when they've heard the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. But there's no root, and they disappear. That's not us again, brothers and sisters. Well, when it comes to us, we now come to sown amongst thorns because the good soil can be sown amongst thorns, but thorns are what we introduce into our life. And the way they're introduced, he describes in verse 19, cares of this world, 
deceitfulness of riches, lusts of other things. They choke the word. So it's just three things. Cares of this world. Now, how does that rob us of what we understand about the truth? Well, we give an undue concern about the cares of this world. What are the cares of this world? Well, it's everything that we do in natural life, isn't it? Your home, feeding your family, going to work, doing all of this thing is the cares of this world. Nothing evil about that except that we can let that actually choke the word of God. So there has to be a place for the word of God despite the fact that we have to have the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches is another level, isn't it? The pursuit of riches deceives us and it robs us of the vitality of our attitude towards the truth. And the lusts of other things. That lusts just become a lust for anything. It's a wide-ranging distribution of what lust can be. And they choke the word and become unfruitful. Now, verse 19 is the key because verse 19 tells us what will keep us out of the kingdom even though we're still at the meeting. We're still here, brothers and sisters. We still come, but we can have all those things in verse 19 which are choking the word. But then we have the good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit. And then he says... 30, 60, 100. Three, three groups there. We could say it was your natural spiritual growth, which goes from 30, 60 to 100, where, where it grows, and it may be. But it could be that in the good soil, there are some that come forth with 30, some 60, some 100, according to their different and several ability. But they're all good. That, that, that's very similar to our parable in Matthew 25, isn't it? Because we have three men, three people. One is five, one is two, one is one. Differences, but they are all capable of good. The first two, the one with five, makes another five. And it says of him that he's, he's only just done a few things. So, so the best of us, brothers and sisters, never achieves anything more than a few things as far as God is concerned for the blessings that we receive from him. What we give to him can only be at best a few things. And that can vary between one that has five, one that has two, because it says the same of him, well done, good and faithful servant, thou hast been faithful over a few things. Faithful over a few things. Faithful over a few. It's always faithful, brothers and sisters. So faithfulness is the key here. Faithfulness is the driving force. So the best of us are faithful. But then he says, I will make you ruler over many things. I will make you ruler, in verse 23, over many things. Now, when we look at the talents then, and we look at the one on the chart here on the screen... This parable is followed by the most descriptive outline in Scripture of the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, we, we can understand that. Nowhere else do we get an explanation like this by Jesus himself. And nowhere else in the Bible do we find it. If we want to talk about judgment, this is it, brothers and sisters. This is where it really rests. Now, we have 
expressions, of course, in the, in the epistles later, which are all feeding on this. But this is Jesus himself speaking about the issues of the judgment. And, and in verse 46, he says, These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So that, that's the end of it. So it's vitally important to understand it because we have everlasting death and everlasting life. That, that's where Jesus takes us in verse 46. Now this means that those that entered into the marriage in the virgin prophecy, in the virgin parable, who enter into his joy, the ones that entered into the marriage and his joy are going to be the ones that have everlasting life. They're going to have an abundance. And whereas those that are shut out, that is taken away from even what they had. So what they had in this life was their grasp of the truth and all of the benefits that went by understanding the truth, friends and sisters, but it's taken away at the end. It disappears. All the acts of the righteous that are listed here in the latter section, you gave me meat, you gave me drink, you took me in, you clothed me, you visited me, you came to me, are all, act all actions. So our knowledge of the truth is brought down to what we do as a consequence of it. Now that also must be the explanation of the symbols the wise took oil in their vessels. The oil in the vessel is not just what we absorb of the word of God or of the knowledge of the truth. It's how we live it, brethren and sisters. The oil in the vessel is what we actually do with the knowledge of the truth. And when we read, I've gained five talents more, that becomes the same thing. It's the same as those with the oil. Now it's the one with the five talents. The lack of these acts by the rejected which comes up in the latter part, you gave me no meat, you gave me no drink, you didn't take me in, you clothed me not, you visited me not, are all the opposites, aren't they, of those that are acceptable and those that are rejected. And so that must likewise be the explanation for they took no oil with them. I was afraid and hid the talent in the earth. That, that's the explanation of it. And it's in this latter section, brothers and sisters, the explanation becomes the most important thing of all, isn't it? Because it's telling us exactly how our attitude needs to be. And when you get to the last section here in this chapter, if ever we could find a phrase or a word that says what's important about this last section, it's attitude in action, isn't it? It's attitude in action because of the truth which is in our heart. That, that has to be the key, brothers and sisters, of this. But you know, Jesus brings a lot of things into these parables and, and into this area of his teaching. You see, in Matthew chapter 24, one of the points that he made in verse 49 about the servant that was... Uh, given authority to look after his household while well, he went away, he said in verse 49, he began to smite his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken. Now there's another attitude. 
And the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him in an hour that he's not aware of, and he will cut him asunder and appoint his portion with the hypocrites, and he'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is now distributed in verse 30 to the man that hid his talent in the earth. So he's the same person, really. He might have different characteristics, but the end result's the same because of his attitude. But the attitude in chapter 24 is he's got a bad attitude towards the brethren and the sisters. A bad attitude towards those that he should be looking after. And whereas we wouldn't expect brethren to literally, brothers and sisters, eat and drink with the drunken, although they may, or smite their fellow brethren in a physical sense, we don't expect that, although they could, but they're going to do it in a spiritual sense. And we have to work out what it is about smiting brothers and sisters that is unacceptable to the Lord and which is really the equivalent of hiding the talent under the earth. So hiding the talent under the earth is not practising the truth that we understand and have, been, and have received. Now, in that then, we've got a contrast. Those that are accepted, I will make you a ruler over many things. I will make you a ruler over many things. You know, when you go to Revelation, you find that what he says is he invites those that come into, the, into his salvation in chapter 5 to rule with him. Now, in the parables, he gave this man rulership in chapter 24. He gave him rulership over his household. But the extension of that is, if you rule well, in this period of your probation, I will make you ruler over many things. I'll give you rulership, kings and priests, together in the kingdom age. That's what we get when we get to the apocalypse. So using talents to the full is living the truth in humility without pride. I think that is the essence of where these parables go, brothers and sisters. Using our talents to the full is living the truth in humility without pride. That, that, that's the importance of it. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon gives wise counsel on this, and, and it's similar to, to what, of course, we get uh, from Jesus himself in other places and from the apostles. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, what he says is this. There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Also, take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes, also, thine own heart knoweth 
that thou thyself likewise has cursed others. Now, now what is he talking about here? I mean, this is exactly the same teaching that Jesus gives. There's not a just man that does good and sins not. We're all sinners. We're all equal. It doesn't matter who we are, what position we have, brethren and sisters. There's no room for arrogance in the truth. Whatever position in the ecclesia we might have, there is no room for arrogance. And sometimes we may hear things said against us in the sense of here, as he says, a servant speaking against a ruler. The ruler needs to be careful to remember his own weakness. Now, the alternative of this is that arrogant superiority of one in a position of power and authority is dangerous. Now, in the truth, brothers and sisters, we haven't got any time for arrogant superiority over each other. None whatever. Even though at times we may also hear someone curse thee or someone speak about thee in a way that's adverse. We have to be very careful not to rise to that. Remember, there's not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Don't place yourself in a position where you think you are. Don't ever think that you're outside of this realm. So when we come out to Matthew 25 then, and we look at what he's done, on the parable of the talents we've got this. He delivered them his goods. Now this is on your little sheet there, the second side of uh, one side of the sheet. He delivered unto them his goods. Now, what are these goods then? That, that's the question we have to ask, isn't it? Now, we talked about that for a, a bit there before. According to several ability, so this is not natural ability. That's not the reason for it. It's not worldly wisdom, brothers and sisters. It's ability to take in the word of God and its meaning. Now, the trading is faithfulness. Jesus says that. You have been faithful over a few things. Faithful. So faithfulness is the trading. But what is faithful trading? Now that, that becomes a vital question to us. What, if we don't understand that, what do we understand what Jesus is actually teaching us? What is faithful trading? How, how do we assess that? Now if we look at it for ourselves and say, am I trading faithfully in the truth. What does that mean? Is that what I'm doing? Now in 1 John 4, which we looked at on Sunday, we saw this passage, which I think is a very vital passage of scripture that we need to highlight and, and always keep to remembrance because it's telling us about when we're going to meet the Lord, isn't it? But in 1 John 4, and verse 13 and 15. In verse 14 he says, uh, verse 15 he says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. Now, are we doing that? that that's the faithful trading, isn't it? 
Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Is that, is that an expression of word? I mean, we're naturally going to do that. The easy part of that verse, brethren and sisters, is to verbalise it. The easy part is to verbalise that. But is that what Jesus means? Surely not. Because he says God dwells in him and he in God. So the likeness of what we're doing is with God's likeness if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now you see, that kind of confession is living. That that's, has to be lived. Now if you go back to verse 2 of 1 John 4, he says this, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Now what do you mean by spirit? It, it, believe not the attitude of different people. You've got, you've got to translate this word spirit here as their, their attitude. Try the spirits whether they are God. Try the attitude. Because many false prophets have gone into the world that claim to be the people of God. Hereby you know the spirit of God. There is a definite way of knowing what is the true spirit of God, the likeness of it. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Is that verbal? There's not a brother ever, brothers and sisters, that doesn't confess that in words. Never. And never has been. You see, what he's talking about here is this confession. It has to be lived. Now, you see, what he's saying here is, if we are living in the flesh, the spirit and attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're of God. That, that's the meaning of that verse, surely. Because that's brought out by verse 3 by saying, and everyone that does the converse to that is not of God. So the only way of knowing the genuine is by the living of it, brethren and sisters. It's not a case of word of mouth. Word of mouth, easy. Living it is a different kettle of fish, isn't it? A different thing altogether. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus is come in the flesh, that is in their flesh. It's in our flesh, brethren and sisters, that we have to confess it. And if we're not doing it, we're not of God, and we become the spirit of Antichrist, because we claim one thing and we do another. That, that's the point that what John is making here. And that's why he says to us then in verse 16, we have known and believe the love that God has to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. And herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we. As he is, so are we. Because... In our life, we're confessing him in the same way that he lived before us. Therefore, there's no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out, a perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he loved us. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, and he always brings us in, doesn't he? Every time, to prove you're consistent, you can't say one thing and have a different disposition to your brethren. You must love the brethren. I love God and hates his brother. He's a liar. He that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? 
And this commandment have we from him, that he that loveth God loves his brother also. That has to be lived, brothers and sisters. It, it, we can know that in words. We can't just use it in words. We have to be fully with it, brethren and sisters. So, in chapter 24 and verse 49, the point that Jesus was making about the fellow servant that smote his fellow servants was one that had bad attitude towards them. Now, what is his attitude? It's, it's arrogance, it's bullying, it's superiority expressed over others, it's critical of others' performance. And whenever we criticise another brother's performance, it's our own pride ascending, brothers and sisters, isn't it? You, you really, we really don't criticise one another without trying to elevate ourselves. That, that's the weakness of human nature. But with that disposition, when we get to the judgment seat, we're going to be like this man in verse 25, who had buried his seed, had buried his uh, talent, and say, I was afraid. I was afraid. Now, he had a wrong attitude about Jesus, didn't he? Because in verse 24, Jesus says, the attitude he had was, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you had not sown and gathering where you had not strawed. Now, that, what that's saying, brethren and sisters, is this. I'm fearful about going to the judgment seat because Jesus will expect more of me than I'm capable of giving. That's not faith. We don't want to go there, but that, that's bearing the talent. That's bearing what he's given us because he's given us to tell us he is forgiving. If you ask me, I will forgive. We can never think that Jesus is expecting more of us than we're able to give. That's what verse 24 is saying. I, you expect me to give you a harvest where you haven't put the seed. It was an unrealistic statement about Christ, brothers and sisters. Now Jesus is emphasising that there to say that for you and I to go to the judgment seat, we've got to have the right attitude to him. And the attitude is to so familiarise ourselves with him that we love him and we delight to meet him because we expect him to forgive. That's faith. And that's when the man that had five went and traded and got five more and the Lord said, you've been faithful over a few things. You've done many things that, of course, don't come into this category as we all have in our life. But you've been faithful over a few. I forget those and I commend you for these. That's forgiveness, brethren and sisters. And that's where Jesus takes us uh, to the judgment seat. You know, the failure of this man in point four was not to trade. So what is not trading? Now, not trading is just not living the truth. It's not living it as Jesus has demonstrated it. It's not imitating him. That's not trading. So we're just called upon, brethren and sisters, to, to know the Lord that we worship and to imitate him and to do it together in life. And that's why when we get to the end of this chapter, he's telling us this is the way to do it. If we do it this way, 
we won't have to suffer at the end. You know, he does say that there was one person only got one because he had a problem with his ability, his spiritual ability to be able to go so far. So one was given five, one two, and one one. Now the one one here is the one that has this attitudinal problem. Now it is possible, isn't it, that we feel inadequate in order to fulfil the requirements of Christ? Effectively, that there's not anything particularly wrong with that. Because Jesus actually says, if you feel inadequate, there's something you can still do. Give my money to the exchanges that at my coming I should have received my own with usury. You know, he's letting us all, brothers and sisters, have a way to get to the kingdom. If the least of us feel inadequate and we don't know how we can possibly fulfil these things in the truth, he says, there's still something you can do. Give it to the exchanges. So we need to say, well, who are the exchanges? If I feel like this, that I'm not going to make it, what can I do that can get me over the line, brothers and sisters? Who are the exchanges? Well, the exchanges are your brothers and sisters that are doing it. And what he's saying is, support them. If you've got a brother that's going to speak and you can't adequately do that for the public, support them. Your support is accepted then and brought into their realm. I will accept that, he's saying. If we find, brothers and sisters, we're inadequate to go and visit the sick, support those that do. Supply them with a meal that they can take. What he's saying is, there's always something you can do, how inadequate you might feel. It's, it's marvellous that he does that, brothers and sisters. That verse in verse 27 is a let out, brothers and sisters. It helps us because often we do feel that inadequacy. But the, the tragedy is that if we don't do that, even that, and we do nothing, and we might say, I'm too shy to do these things, or I'm inadequate and we do nothing, then take the talent from him and give it to him there as far. And then he says to him, For everyone that hath shall be given, and everyone hath, and he shall have an abundance, but from him that has not shall be taken away even that which he has. Cast the unprofitable servant to outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast the unprofitable servant to outer darkness. There's no happy end, brothers and sisters, for that. You can look through this chart here on the back and you'll find the parallels to Jesus' discourse from chapter 24 that comes into the talents and the sheep and the goats. But I want us to come to the sheep and the goats now for a moment. Now, the sheep and the goats is... It's hard to say whether this is really a parable. I'm not sure that we can say it's a parable. Brother, Brother Carter says... There are people that make it a parable and what they effectively do is say that in verse 35, when I was a hungry and you gave me meat, that this is not literal. That it has to be interpreted spiritually. But you see, when you do that, you rob it, brothers and sisters, of some meaning. Now, I think the, the parable, or so to speak, or the sheep and the goats is a simile. 
You see, what he's actually saying in verse 31 is, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and the holy angels with him, he will sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him will be gathered all nations. Now, this is not him, this is not him superintending over nations. It's the men of all nations that will be gathered there. And you see, this is cutting out Jewish exclusiveness. It's like he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you will see yourselves cast out when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all these others in the kingdom of God. Jewish exclusiveness was being refuted here. Before him will be men of every nation. This is the, the judgment itself. And as a shepherd divides his sheep, he is the shepherd of his sheep. Now, the, the, the ones that are the goats is now, brothers and sisters, those without oil in the parable of wisdom with the virgins and the man that buried his talent in the parable of the talents. They're the goats. And the sheep are all the faithful brothers and sisters however small they might have contributed, even if they only gave their support to the exchanges. That, that's what he's talking about here. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So Jesus is on the right hand of God and those that are his will be on his right hand when he comes back. There's an extension of ideas there, isn't it? And he says, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, what does Jesus identify with? What he identifies with is all his brothers and sisters. Because he says for you and me, that when you saw one of my brethren hungry and you gave meat, you gave it to me. Jesus identifies with every one of my brothers and sisters in all the ecclesias, brethren and sister. My attitude is to see them as Christ. Now, that, that, that's in a figurative sense always. But to deal with them as Christ would want to deal with them. You know, there's a couple of examples in here that are interesting because in verse 40 he says, The king will answer and say to them, Verily I say to you, Inasmuch as you have done this to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Does Jesus have any brother or sister that he calls the least? When he looks forward to the kingdom, he says he wants them to stand in the midst of the whole of the redeemed brethren and sisters and sing praise to God. They're all equal, brethren and sisters. But they're not, not all equal with us, are they? You see, what he's saying here is we, unfortunately, consider some brethren different to others, some sisters different to others. We shouldn't do that. But if we do that to the least, you do it to Christ. It might be hard sometimes to do that to a person that is somewhat niggly with you or difficult for you. But do that to me, to, you do that to me if you do that to them. It's our attitude of brethren and sisters, isn't it, that counts. 
It's how we do it, what we do. The other thing that stands out in here is that Jesus suffers with his faithful. His faithful are hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and in prison. They're his faithful. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it means that we have got what they haven't got and we have an obligation to look after them. It's all the lesser ones, isn't it? They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're strangers. So a brother or sister in the meeting that doesn't find it easy to get on with people is a stranger. How do we deal with them? Do we go out of our way to deal with them as dealing with Christ? Do we bring them in? Do we absorb them into our midst, brothers and sisters, when they themselves have an inadequacy there? They're naked. They're sick. They're in need. Now, this has to be physical and spiritual, doesn't it? There's people with spiritual needs like this, spiritually hungry, spiritually thirsty, spiritually estranged. And there's literal. I don't think we can decipher one from the other because the parable is not intending us to do that. But the thing about verse 37 is, the righteous say, Lord, when did we see you a hundred? Now, what, what is that actually telling us? You know, what it's saying is this. When you do give meat to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, and visit the stranger, and clothe the naked, and visit the sick. Do this without thought of reward. Do it without... Why, why do we do it? We do it, brothers and sisters, because it's the right thing to do, because it's the spirit of Christ. That's why we do it. So we're emulating him, brothers and sisters, aren't we? That's what we're doing here. We are emulating him. And that's why he says, those brethren are me. When you do that to them, you do it to me. It's association. But on the other hand, we have to say, I do it to them because Christ would do it to them. It's the right thing to do. To expend ourselves for the assistance of others. Now, when it came to the others, he says to them, then he will say to them on the left hand in verse 41, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So what's prepared for the destruction of all the enemies of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, brethren and sisters, is now also the termination of every person that doesn't get through the judgment seat because their attitude is not right. They are put equally with Rome that was to be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. I mean, all this is is everlasting death, total termination, as if we never lived. And Jesus is, is kind to us in telling us that this is exactly what it's going to be like. And that's why he had said to them in verse 30, 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for them. It will be a horrible experience to be rejected of the judgment seat because the only reason we're rejected is because we didn't follow the attitude that he asked us to confess. That, that's the issue that's before us. You know, he says of all of those that they never saw Jesus in their brothers and sisters. I was hungry, you gave me no meat. And they say, well, when, when did we see you like this? So the attitude of the false brother and sister is they never see their brothers and sisters as Christ or as his people. So the inasmuch people are the challenge, brothers and sisters, for us, aren't they? There's only two of them. Inasmuch as you did, inasmuch as you didn't. Where do we want to be? You know, we have to have a, an untiring disposition, brothers and sisters, to always have a caring attitude towards our brothers and sisters. And I think we can conclude by looking at Luke chapter 9 for a moment, because I find this really impressive, that at a time when Jesus was at his weakest physical point in Luke chapter 9, it was actually the same period in, Luke, in, Matthew, uh, in Mark chapter 4 when they took him even as he was and they took him to the boat. On the way to the boat, this is what he was like. Now, Jesus had expended his energy so much he could not support himself. You would have had the disciple under each arm taking him, leading him down to the boat. He could not physically walk, brothers and sisters. And when they put him in the boat, he went to sleep on a pillow in the boat before the storm came, remember. On the way, in verse 37, the people who had been relentless all day listening to him and sapping out every energy that he had, it was the day in which his, his mother and brethren had come to him and said that he was out of his mind he needed to have rest. He needed not to carry on like he was. In that same day, at the end of the day, when he's going to the boat, it came to pass as they went in the way, in verse 57. A man came to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you whithersoever you go. And Jesus didn't say, look, I've got no energy. I can't deal with you now. Come and talk to me later. He had to deal with that man then and there, brothers and sisters. Now that man didn't have his attitude right, but Jesus had to deal with it. And he said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. And it was a perfect example of that, brothers and sisters, with two brethren supporting him perhaps and taking him down to the ship. So he's telling that man what's best for him. You've got to get your attitude right. Don't make promises to me that you will go whithersoever I go unless you yourself understand what you mean by that. You have to imitate me. And he said to another, follow me. So Jesus says to this next man, you follow me. And he says, Lord, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now it wouldn't be that his father was already dead. I mean, that would be rather cruel not to go to the funeral. No, that, that's not the point. What he's saying is, I've got an aged father home that I have to look after. 
And when he dies, then I can follow you. Let the dead bury their dead, but go and preach the kingdom of God. That man needed that exercise. Here is a man that is so tired, brothers and sisters, so weak that he's expending his energy for these people that he wants to be followers of him. And another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid farewell to them at home at my house. Let me just go and say farewell. But when I get home and, they say, and I say farewell, they might say, oh, what are you doing? Giving up your life to follow this man? What are you doing? And Jesus said to him, no man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that when he got home, he'd have a problem with that. What is our commitment like, brothers and sisters? You see, he's challenging the commitment of these three people. Now, we've said, brothers and sisters, I will follow thee. We've decreed that, brothers and sisters. We got baptised into his name. And we've said, we will imitate you. We will live our lives according to this. Do we bury the talent? You see, the question then of Jesus in, in that statement, inasmuch as you did, or inasmuch as you did not, will determine, brothers and sisters, won't it? Our attitude will take us either into the kingdom or into rejection. And that is the power of what Jesus is speaking about in those parables. Mm -hmm.